My friend, they don't care if you're an individualist, if you're a leftist, a rightist, a shithead, or a snake. They will try to exploit you, absorb you, confine you, disconnect you, isolate you, and kill you. And you will disappear into your own rage, into your own insanity, into your own poverty, into a word, a phrase, a slogan, a cartoon, and then ashes. So that was um, part of the poem Fire Spitter uh, by the American poet Jane Cortez. And this is episode 37 of the Bullock podcast. And we are recording today in Amman, Jordan. And that was Ursula Lindsay you just heard from. And I am Marsha Links Quayley. And the reason we chose to start with this little bit of a poem today uh, is because we're going to be largely talking about Palestine. And uh, I heard this poem uh, recited uh, by the American writer and poet Sapphire during PalFest, uh, the Palestine Festival of Literature in 2014 in Nablus. So as we were talking about recording this episode, uh, we both looked back at our uh, time that we spent at Palfest because you also. I was there in it. 2013, the year before you went. Ah, okay. And and we sort of. I remember being extremely um, moved by her. She really performed this poem, mm. not like I did, uh, for for an audience of mostly young Palestinians. Uh, and uh, I think it was kind of exemplary of the way that that festival, uh, which brings writers uh, mostly from other parts of the world, although also Palestinian writers from the diasporas and um, to Palestine, the way it makes these connections, um, in this case, uh, between uh, struggles against racism uh, and structural inequality in the United States and the struggle of um, national liberation and sovereignty in Palestine. Yeah, and, and although that's sort of a, the previous iteration of Palfest, it then took a year's break, and then when it came back, it came back as a somewhat different festival, now the new kind of Palestine Festival for Literature. Right. This year they had, a they had um, uh, after having been in existence for a decade— so they were. It was created by the Egyptian novelist Ahdaf Suef, um, and then um, her son, the writer uh, Omar Robert Hamilton, has played a big role, as well as have other people as the festival has developed. Um, and uh, and so it's always for ten years. It was bring writers from around the world to Palestine, travel around, see as much as you can, bear witness. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe, you know, some of these very famous writers become more vocal advocates after having seen what's happened in Palestine. Uh, and uh, at the same time, you get to connect Palestinians who can't travel and can't go abroad and can't meet these people, get to hear them uh, and, and, and meet them. Uh, yeah, some writers have really large international standing for which would make great connections and great moments if if you're you know particularly for young writers emerging writers who are unable to leave Palestine and travel somewhere else 
And when, who was who was there the year that you attended? Um, China Mieville was there the year I attended. I mean, Raja Shahada, of course, is probably at, was probably at most of the PAL fests. Yeah. Um, there were, you know, there. I think there were like a range of writers from big names like like China Mieville to. I don't think there was there was no like superstar powers like there have been some of the years. I felt like the 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 year I attended, there were a couple people that everyone was very nice, but that were sort of like intimidatingly well known, <laughs> famous. So Michael Ondaatje, uh, the author of the English Patient, was there. Like that's pretty big, yes. very approachable and very nice man. Um, uh, Teju Cole was mm. there. Um, there were, yeah, um, quite an, I, I sort of, Camila Shamsi was there, who we will actually right. talk about. Um, so, and it was an amazing experience because you spend so much time together in very close quarters, having a very uh, intense experience, even though the year I went was, a, the situation was actually pretty good on the ground. You could move around. There was no... Violence. There were no closures. Uh, it hasn't always been like that at all. Oh, Ibtisam Azim was there on the in the year that I was there. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think the selection has always been really brilliant um, of people, and the conversations really interesting. Yeah, I think some of the the criticism of it in the beginning was that it was so English focused and and focused on on foreign writers, and I think it did change over the years to become much more English and Arabic global writers and local writers and uh, and to bring different things into communication with each other rather than just bringing in you know, foreign writers to show them uh, Palestine, which I think was some of the initial criticism. And it has been a festival that has continually been interested in changing and evolving itself. Yeah, hence this latest... Um sort of change in focus where I think um, I, I can we can share a short article that I, I wrote about this, although I didn't attend this this newest iteration this year. Um, they what they're calling Palfest Phase two is um, is an event where they want to um, focus less, I think, on the bearing witness mm. part and more on like, knowledge production it also seems to have shifted from sort of a literary festival to perhaps more of an academic festival or um where the idea is to also support people who want to do research and do writing about Palestine so they can even come back they can attend twice and come back and present work that they've worked on they can maybe find partners to work on so the theme of this year was i think basically uh, like the colonization of space. Right. Uh, and of course, there are parallels between the Palestinian experience and other processes that are going on around the world. And I think that's the other thing is to look at Palestine as kind of the extreme example of a lot of 
forms of spatial control, uh, you know, technological surveillance, like state violence, all these things that are happening elsewhere. But not in a vacuum, right? But how it it relates to what's happening elsewhere. Yeah, no, absolutely how it relates to that, like connecting it to sort of other struggles Mm -hmm. and and making those connections very explicit. That seems to be part of it. Um, I watched some of it on YouTube. And while I do think that there's something very valuable to this, it did make me mourn the Palfest that was about gigantic literary writers. And and I, I it, the year that I attended, I remember the first event. And it wasn't that it was about, um, I don't know, part of it was just that it was an interesting, innovative um a combination between music and a theater text and languages and that it was an innovative literary event and not not just that it was about you know bearing witness to Palfest or what Palestine or, or or whatever but but that it was um an innovative global literary event brought to to an audience that couldn't necessarily go out in the world to these global literary events Right. Yeah, I remember that too. I remember the the readings themselves often being like very exciting and very pleasurable. Mm-hmm. Um, like they weren't talks. They were, you know, people with great talents in a situation where you could tell they really wanted to give something powerful to their audience. They've come all this way. They want to make a connection. So it was very moving. And they'd really thought about what they chose to read. Yeah. At, at the one I went to, uh, China Mieva had written this beautiful text while he was there. The unfortunate thing was it it was such a dense, rich text that as he performed it in English, there was meant to be a simultaneous translation. And so the t- simultaneous translator was trying to understand this text on the fly oh. and render it into Arabic. And it didn't quite come off. That's the simultaneous kind of, translation is just a very difficult thing of a literary text on the fly. Is, yeah, no, that's like I mean that's the kind of yeah, no, that's the kind of thing where it would have probably been better to sit down and translate it and have somebody read it and yeah. But I think, you know, it, <laughs> the event that that particular event in Nablus still went off brilliantly, but um but you know, part of it was this wonderful experimental uh, experimentation of it. He was writing the text while he was there to perform while he was there. Yeah. Um, so even if not everything comes off, at it, it's great to be trying new things. Yeah, and then I've sort of followed the people who were there that year with me. Also, like every time I see them publish something, mm-hmm. um, they're was uh, um, a, a British writer, I believe she's of Egyptian origin, called Sabrina Mahfouz. And yes. she's, I follow her on Twitter and I've just seen with great pleasure how she's won all these awards and edited these books and put on a ton of performances. And she had also gave a lovely performance. Um, and um, uh, the other thing we were going to talk about is, so Susan Abu Hawa, who was there also the, the year I was there, has is 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 now organizing a Palestine literature festival in the United States, right? Right. So it's it's it is in some ways similar to how the Palestine Festival of Literature operated, in that a lot of literary 
festivals around the world are about, you know, you bring in a lot of different individual writers and and they talk about their individual work um, and then they kind of go back to their individual spaces. Um, But Palestine Rights is a much more um, radical literary event that attempts to make connections between uh, Palestinian literatures, African-American literatures, and uh, Native American or Indian American indigenous literatures and and writers. So, for instance, Angela Davis is one of the um, keynote speakers. And there'll be, I think, I believe there's a panel where Angela Davis talks about prison writing at the same time, Mahmoud Shukair, who's a Palestinian writer who's been, uh, who was imprisoned, talks about writing in prison and what that means as a community, because of course, so prison writing being, you know, considered marginal to the, you know, the white American experience, but prison writing and the experience of writing and prison, pretty central to the Palestinian experience, pretty central to, you know, Palestinians' lives, and also to the Black, you know, African-American experience as well, a much more central part mm. uh, of of the lived experience and literary experience. So putting those, I mean, I think there's going to be a really interesting event of making kind of like these fresh uh, connections in that moment, something that I really you know, that that I find exciting about literary events rather than, okay, I love going to hear somebody brilliant read their own work. But I also, you know, love a literary event where you can take two things that you don't immediately think of together. So these are not, uh, although it's sort of Palestinian-centric, it's not, it's not all Palestinian writers, two things that you wouldn't immediately think of, but that do speak to each other. Um, and so you see different connections that you hadn't thought of before. And I think Susan had said, we talked over the phone about this at like, you know, 5.30 a.m. her time or something. And um, Susan had said that one of the things she, because this is like unbelievably jam-packed, you know, Tassim Azim is going to be there. Ibrahim Nasrallah, Ghassan I mean, okay, not everybody has, we'll see if there are any visa problems, but, you know, not going to say that there won't be any. And, um, uh, Hussam Habayeb, Adania Shibli, um, it, it, this immense roster of writers from Palestine, traveling from Tahrid Najjar, um, traveling from Palestine or Jordan or wherever they're living now. Um, many of them for the first time ever to the United States. And then just a crammed schedule, uh, that she wanted, you know, she imagines hopes that people attend uh, these events and then just leave kind of buzzing and popping with new ideas and thoughts. Um, You know, some of the panels will take place at the same time, so you won't be able to attend everything. But really, for a three-day event in New York City, right now you can get tickets to the whole thing for $50. When is it? It will be in May, uh, sorry, March of next year, uh, the weekend before Land Day, which is on a Monday. So um, there's still... They're still finalizing fundraising, um, but really they have all the pieces in place and just amazing, you know, sort of world-class writers in Arabic that not that people in, in New York City won't necessarily have heard of, but 
but really a, an amazing roster of of fantastically talented writers. I like dream, a dream schedule, basically. Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, if I were anywhere in the United States, I would definitely travel to go to it. Yeah. And and they're kind of saying, I mean, not that they're sort of claiming like nobody has ever done this before, but they're saying this is a sort of first, right? There's never been a festival dedicated to Palestinian literature this overtly. And also it is like a very, like it's explicitly it comes from a place of like total political solidarity. Like, like it is, you know, this is a festival for people who support the Palestinian struggle. Like they're, they're great. Like they're kind of. Well, if you're, if you're going to be, I don't know, no, shy I think, of, uh, of that, then definitely I suppose you should think of something else to do that weekend. But Right. But I mean, even the way they're pitching, they're not like, come explore oh, a little yes. bit, of, find out a little bit more. They're like... A taste of Palestine. No, no it's not they're that. Like, they're like, come because this is a major political issue of our age and these are the voices that you need to hear, you know. And, and one of the other things that uh, Susan had said was that, and uh, I talked to Ibtissam Barakat, who's also going to uh, lead one of the workshops at the festival. And Ibtissam had said, there are two Ibtissams at the festival, but Ibtissam Barakat had said that, um, you know, she goes to literary festivals and she's the only Palestinian there. And, and, and Susan also said she goes to literary festivals and there's kind of this, um, you know, for lack of a better description, this kind of liberal environment. And and if there's a panel uh, or a discussion of cultural appropriation, then, she, you know, she'll often feel on the outside of a discussion as though she's she's the only one there saying, well, maybe if we're doing, if somebody doesn't know how to write a story, then that's not a good thing. You know, if they're just parachuting in somewhere where they don't have the experience to write a story, if it's done badly, it's, you know could be terrible. And so, she, you know, this is a, a festival where I think, the you know, there is a panel on cultural appropriation. It will be different from Lionel Shriver's, for instance, panel on cultural appropriation. Sure. Yeah. The central point of view will be different. Yes. The, the way, yes. The, the mainstream of, of this kind of a festival would yes. be different from a lot yeah, of Yeah, so ones. she's not expecting that everybody is going to sort of be in lockstep, obviously. Right. There will be a diversity of opinion about all sorts of issues. And I think that is one of the things that Ibtissam uh, Barakat also emphasized, like uh, if you have a festival of one Palestinian writer, it's like that is the voice of Palestine. This is what Palestinian literature, it is either, you know, it's Mahmoud Darwish or it's Susan Abu Hawa or it's whatever. Yeah. But this is, no, look at what, I mean, Palestinian literature is not just even the literature being produced in Palestine. It's being produced in Jordan by Palestinians, in the Emirates by Palestinians. It's being produced in Israel by Palestinians. Um, it's being produced in New York City by Palestinians. So, yeah, I think this this festival uh, will show an incredible diversity of different genres and approaches to literature. It'll be interesting to see um, what kind of coverage it gets, and because, of course, like doing anything that you know, promotes a Palestinian point of view, gets this incredibly hostile pushback. And we 
you know, one of the things that you talk about during PalFest and that comes up periodically is the issue of the boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement, uh, which, again, one of the people that was at PalFest uh, the year I was there is the author Camila Shemsi, uh, who's written many books. I, the one I've read is Home Fires. And uh, she... Because she supports BDS. Yeah, she recently won this Nellie Sachs Prize. And she did win, and they announced that she had won. And and then there was some criticism in the German press. And this is a very large literary prize. Many of the laureates before her went on to win Nobel Prizes. Um, afterwards, there was criticism in the press saying, and really in a very straightforward way, she was not accused of anti-Semitism. She was not, nobody pointed to a tweet of hers or a statement of hers. Um, it was specifically for her support of BDS. And the the prize jury uh, took a weekend saying that they were going to discuss it. And then there were all sorts of leaks that weekend that they were intending to remove it. Uh, she gave them a statement asking them to run her statement along with their own announcement that they were taking the prize from her, but they did not. I read her statement, and it was also very elegant, uh, I thought. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, and you know, a uh, statement of, of just, you know, it's a very straightforward statement of disappointment, but um, but also a very clear of what her principles are. I mean, this is, I mean, this is what uh, Zionists would like to present BDS as is beyond the pale um, and, you know, beyond the... Beyond civil discourse. Yeah, exactly. Beyond the, uh, the choices that a person is able to make to express what their conscience is. I find it tremendously chilling. Obviously, Camila is going to continue to do what she does. And I don't I don't believe at all that she feels chilled by this. But I think it will have a chilling effect, um, much like other similar things have. Yeah. And yeah, and what's disturbing to me, again, is it's not that they, that somebody pulled up a tweet from seven years ago, you know, where, you know, she said something intemperate about Israel as it was like bombing Gaza or that kind right. of thing, which, which it was, you know, she, she is always, she's just, she has this position. It's a moral position. It's a political position. And the position itself is considered beyond the pale. I think that's very disturbing. And especially as a, she's a, you know, as a private artist, like what responsibility does she have to align her politics with even with, you know, the whatever consensus position in Germany or whatever it may be these days. Right. Uh, it's, uh, it's discouraging. At the same time, of course, I think there has been a lot of support for the BDS movement, and that's why there's been such pushback against it. But, like, I can remember sort of in my lifetime the the question of, like, well, why don't the Palestinians, you know— why can't they mobilize in a peaceful way? Right, like, where's their Gandhi? Right, and then they came up with the smartest, most effective, most nonviolent means of pressure, and now that is, like, equated with terrorism. Right. So, I mean, of course, that's a situation 
that they're in is everything they do is never valid. I, I was quite disappointed in the Nellie Sachs Prize jury because they made this decision. If they used Google at all to look into her, they knew about this. Um, it comes up if you Google her. So it was in response to... To some outside pressure to some, brought yeah. to bear very strongly. Yeah, it was a last-minute cave-in. And what it sends a message is like, therefore, do apply that pressure because it will often work. Exactly. Yeah. And the other message, you know, that it sends is don't take any strong positions, writers, <laughs> because then you won't be able to win these big international prizes. Yeah, well, I mean, like you say, I, she's she's. I'm sure not gonna not gonna back down. And there are plenty of people who 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 do express their support. Um, but uh, it's one of you know, it, it's an important symbolic battle. Actually, I mean, it's not just symbolic. In this case, there's like real, you know, something material also at stake. I mean, when people's careers are at stake, and then it's coming in the context of, um. You know, the further erosion at this point of almost any hope for right. the creation of a Palestinian state, um, you know, between Netanyahu announcing maybe as just an electoral gambit, but, you know, it doesn't matter. It just shows how much it can, it, it's part of the discourse now that he'll annex like a further third of the West Bank, uh, you know, um, and the Trump administration's, uh, you know, so far unrevealed, but we know bound to be utterly insulting. And corrupt and ridiculous deal, all at the same time. bargain of the century. You right. Know. I mean, <laughs> you know, they haven't said hardly anything about it. You just know it's, I, I mean, so this is Jared Kushner's brainchild and Presumably it involves like the complete loss of Jerusalem, the loss of further territory, possibly like population transfers towards, you know, Jordan. Right. <laughs> I mean, we you can tell which direction things are headed in with, you know, the the deal part of it is is seems to be that there's gonna be some sort of supposed payoff to the Palestinians, which frankly I don't think will They'll even deliver on that. No, but there's like some assumed payoff to wealthy Palestinians, to the Palestinians. Economic development, like, I don't know what, you know, mostly it's probably going to be a payoff to, you know, all the surrounding countries and leadership and everybody sort of involved in like acquiescing to this. Um, I mean, it has yet to be unveiled. So it's all kind of guests and work and partly based on this conference in Bahrain about development in Palestine, which seems to have been just such an absolutely, you know, uh, extemporaneous, ridiculous, wild. Again, just just a just a room full of grifters, mm-hmm. you know, spouting platitudes, you know, with n- no plan, not even a nefarious plan in sight. Like they don't have a plan. Yeah, and people who had you know been to Palestine once, and you know their observations were you know. Palestinians, they like, they like the football, right? Yeah, and lots of discussions about entrepreneurship, right? Uh, yeah. So, but but it is like I would say clearly, you know, <laughs> there one is at such an incredible low point uh, in terms of 
the humanitarian situation in Gaza, in terms of political prospects, uh, in terms of, you know, and, you know, any forms of negotiation, leadership, uh, you know, it, it is, it is really dire. Um, uh, so, so, you know, the, the, this endless fighting over BDS also comes, I think, in that context where you are clearly one side at this point is just nakedly expecting total acquiescence and defeat. Right. I mean, clearly we're at a point now where there's no longer any, like so many pretenses have been dropped mm. and there's just such a naked uh, assertion on the Israeli side that the Palestinians, you know, must and will acquiesce, right? Ultimately, to don't belong and will to, leave to giving yes. up to giving up whatever, you know. It's not clear what the plan, you know, what they plan exactly <laughs> will happen to all these people. Um, but uh, you know, it is that the initiative is coming entirely from the outside and is entirely one of pushing people into total submission. There's no need for their agreement. Right, right. Something's, we're going to figure this out. It's going to happen to them. Right, and certainly with the complete support of of the U.S. right now, which I think, you know, this will this is all going to complicate Palestine rights, particularly in terms of visas and act, and getting writers into the United States. Right. Uh, Hassan Zaktan, for instance, has been refused previously and eventually did manage to get a visa. I think they are well aware of these issues and are going to marshal all all the different sorts of resources that it's possible to mm. to to make this happen. Yeah, because one of the things, I mean, that is so one of the strategies that has been used so effectively against Palestinians is to just keep them separated and isolated and so cut off. And then, you know, and this is something that we talked about quite a bit at Palfest because I went in 2014 and, you know, people from Egypt didn't go right to the, to, to the occupied territories, to the West Bank, because that's considered normalization with Israel and haven't gone for decades and so not only are they cut off, but then so many people in neighboring Arab countries have cut themselves off for ideological reasons, for political reasons, or simply for fear of like the secure the repercussions of, of going there and then being interrogated by the security of their own countries. But it's this 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 you know, isolation. Right. And there was even I was surprised to see in the New York Times a coverage of a Palestinian literature festival in Haifa and run by Asma Azeza and the diff, you know which has been going on for a long time the difficulty of importing arabic books I saw that yeah um because there's continues to be a ban on books from Lebanon where is one of the largest the country that publishes a, a very large amount of Arabic literature and, you know, would be a close country to get books imported from. Um, so cut off from other Arab countries' literature, cut off from 
many writers coming there, um, cut, cut off, off from, each, from other. each other. That was, to me, that was the most, um, to come, go to an event in one city and meet with somebody who really wanted to go to the event in the next city, but who who couldn't because they had no right to travel um, from Khalil, for instance, you know, Hebron to to Haifa. You know, somebody in, in, in Khalil who'd never seen the sea before and was an adult and is, you know, could almost throw a rock and hit the sea. Um, yeah, so I think to me, one of the things that Palfas most highlighted was the impossibility of getting from one place to another. And, you know, of course, then people from one community being pitted against people from another community. Um, well, yeah, and 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 I think, I don't know much about Israel at all, but I think, like, the way Israeli public opinion has, is incredibly right-wing at the moment and incredibly supportive of these policies towards Palestinians, it's only possible because in this small place, you have such spatial segregation that you don't need to see or think about Palestinians much at all, except as a threat now and then. But, but that, you know, again, this separation works to make you like not see people and not have to, you know, pay attention to them and what they need. Um, well, I mean, I think it, speaks to a lot of these things. The book that we were going to talk about today, right. um, the novel... The Book of Disappearance by Ibtissam Azim, which was translated recently to English by um, Sinan Antoun. Um, <clears throat> it does speak to a, a lot of these issues, particularly as you were... Uh, I was thinking about the novel as you were saying that um, the end game uh, as is, you know... S- many people in power in Israel now imagining it, that somehow getting rid of the Palestinians. And and this book really speaks to this kind of mysterious disappearance. Oh, the, the Palestinians are gone. Um, right. So, so the premise of the book, which is pretty, I, I mean, in a way, most obvious. Like once you hear it, you think, well, yeah, of course somebody should write a story with that. Right. And, but also original, because I don't yeah. think it's been done. Bold and striking, I think, yeah. Is that, you know, uh, people wake up uh, in, in Israel one morning and, you know, the Palestinian bus driver and neighbor and prisoner and doctor are all gone. Right. And nobody knows what's happened to them. Or if anybody knows in the sort of central part of the government or the army or something, we, this sort of, you know, the the narrative only has access to sort of, you know, it does have access to a journalist and, and um, you know, people on the street, cafe owners, b- business owners. Those people don't know what what happened to the Palestinians. The people doing call-in shows, no, nobody is saying, if, if, peop- if somebody knows what happens, happened to the Palestinians, nobody's saying to us. Well, so it's interesting because I haven't read it ever about halfway through, but so... I did not see that reading. I don't know if it's because there's something more or if it just it it didn't occur to me. I didn't see the possibility that the Palestinians had been disappeared like by the authorities. Oh, well, Was people that- people do in, you know, in the call-in shows and some people on the th- street think yes, the 
finally, the army has taken care of this problem for us. I mean, I'm not sure how this would be logistically possible that at, at the stroke of midnight, the Israeli army would suddenly disappear all the Palestinians. It would require some sort of laser tool that I'm not aware of yet. But, um, but you know, it, it, it is a, it's a premise that's appeared in some other literary works and, and that works in so, I think, so interestingly here, um, both certainly because of the echoes of disappearance during 48 and particularly the mass disappearance of the population of, of Jaffa. But also because then what do, I think the central question to me that, that's really interesting is then, then what do people do? Yeah, well, so there are a couple of things that struck me. One is that the reaction of the Israeli characters to basically their most, their fondest wish coming true. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, this is the big conundrum, the big problem, right? By, I think, to a majority of Israeli society is the presence of the Palestinians. Suddenly that problem is removed. And people's reaction is to, in the beginning, is to view it as a threat, Right. Everybody mo- freaks out. Right. People say the, they're the, hiding and the they're Arabs zombies. have gone at they're, war. Right. And so instead of, so it shows you also like, you know, their first reaction to what they claim to want, just to have this problem, you know, go away, what they've done a million, you know, a lot of things to make happen. And the first reaction is like fear and anger. I mean, on the part of some of the characters, right? Right, right. right. Um, anger at people not showing up for work in the morning. Yeah. And 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 particularly the prisoners being gone. Right. So I found that very, so then, and then the other thing is, is that in a way people disappearing like this. So it seemed like maybe it's an Israeli fantasy, right? For the Palestinians to disappear. But also in some way it felt like maybe it's a Palestinian fantasy to just remove yourself from the situation to just escape somehow. Right. Yeah, yes. And especially with the prisoners, with you know, they just they're not there in their cells anymore. And especially that that prison is a secret prison. The people in it have been disappeared already by the yes. police. Yes. They've been hidden away for nobody to see and then they disappear on the police. I just I was just kind of like there's just so many layers of um you know, things to think about there. But it felt like Almost like there, I just felt like relief for that. Like it felt like they got away. Like I was happy for the prisoners disappearing. Yeah, I mean it's it's interesting because the the Palestinian voice can even when the Palestinians are gone for most of the novel, the Palestinian voice is still there because one of the characters is reading the is sort of violating his neighbor's privacy, reading his his journal. But then through it, we continue to hear. So the so the Palestinians have both disappeared and and haven't disappeared because the story you know the story the written word remains for 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 other people to be able to access you know the minds and history of Palestinians but yes you're right i mean in a way it's an israeli fantasy that they didn't actually want because then they're like oh my god the palestinians they're going to return as zombies and kill us all um where are they now? Like, they don't dare believe it somehow. Like, I think one of the points is that they need, that that the construction of Israeli identity and society now requires the presence of Palestinians. Well, so you were saying there's this film 
uh, that was set in Los Angeles. Oh, I mean, I haven't even seen it, but somebody told me about it. And for some reason, I mean, the, the book reminded me of this because it's a, it's it has, I don't know at all. I think it's like a bad comedy, uh, but it's called, oh. no, I think it's a bad comedy and was like not a big hit. But because I'm from California, somebody mentioned this to me at one point. There's a movie called, I think, A Day Without a Mexican. And it, the premise is, People wake up in California, a strange pink cloud has sort of swept across the state, and all the Mexicans are gone. And so, you know, the poster for it is like a bunch of white people dressed up in the clothes to do the jobs I see. that Mexicans okay. do in California, right. because there are tr- entire sectors of the California economy that, of course, depend on on, on that labor. And, and, and so I don't know. Like, I think the movie— But you can- could imagine, like— a- a, a book of disappearance where all undocumented migrants, the sort of dearest wish of a certain segment of right. the United States public, public, disappear and they also go bonkers. Right. No, I think like, I think like if, I think if, if all the people of color in the United States disappeared, like racists would not actually be relaxed and happy about it. They would be freaking out. Like, well, I think if you, you exercise violence against people for long enough, even if they sort of, submit or go away, then, you you know, the, the fear of retribution has got to remain. Yes. I, I think they, you know, it would probably remain forever. They'd keep stockpiling guns for the eventual reappearance. Right. Like, and religious <laughs> cults would get built around it. And who mm-hmm. knows what? I mean, so I think, you know, it's, it's the idea that your consciousness almost depends on having this other group Right, right. If you have structured your so much of your identity around this, this you know, other, this terrorist, this this person who has to leave, you can't live who safely around them. You need we, to fight all the time, right? That justifies so many things about the way you're organized because you're organized in this fight, right? And when if they suddenly disappear, then who are you even? Yeah, you're 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 left with just yourself. I mean, uh, so so it also feels like a kind of, and I think that was the I think the movie that I'm talking about this Calif- this this movie was was it was sort of a you know uh, anti racist pro immigration like even if it was done as a silly comedy like that was the point the point was like we depend on each other and like it's ridiculous uh, the 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 point of view of wanting these people not to be there um, and I and I think you know. Uh, similarly with this book, it's like a calling into question more of, which is really interesting, is written by a Palestinian author too, like that how much effort she puts into imagining. The Israeli point of view. Yeah. And yeah, because I had asked her something about the fact that the, the main point of view characters are all male. And I think, you know, she was sort of not interested in that question, but the question she was interested in, she went and answered anyway, which I always like if people do that, um, was, you know, the, the, the difficult part for her was to imagine these fully realized sort of liberal Zionist character, somebody who she wouldn't necessarily get on with super well, and or at least, you know, they would have a very strongly antagonistic relationship in person, but really taking the time to invest herself in this character to be this character in order to write this character. And and I sympathized with this character even as I, you know, even as I saw him taking over his 
neighbor's life and, you know. Right. So this is the, the uh, there's this sort of uh, um, Palestinian-Israeli friends that are sort of one of the central, kind of the central two narrators of the story and um, neighbors. neighbors. Right. Who, who have each other's keys and go out drinking together. I mean, they're, they're not. They're not just acquaintances. I don't mm-hmm. think they're certainly as as Ariel reads Alat's diary, he realizes he didn't know Alat as well as he thought he did. And then of course, you know, there's always about reading somebody else's diary of who who you know, you see yourself from their point of view, and it's it's not nice. Yeah. I was gonna say, I think you would find that out if you read anyone's diary. You would find that out. I had a friend read my diary when I was a teenager. And <gasps> oh, it, no. It was not a good thing for our friendship. No, of course not. That's actually, I, I, I kind of, for, for me, that's quite unforgivable. No, I love her, but, um, but it was a very difficult patch in our relationship. Yeah, so see, so there's, and there's also, see, all these. I like that too, because that also feels like a, sorry to interrupt. No. But like, you know. Because in practice, I feel like Israelis listen so little to Palestinians and have pay so little attention to what they're thinking. And so here you have this really character actually reading the most honest innermost thoughts of the Palestinian one and like having to absorb them. Right. And then maybe he decides he wants to make a book project out of it and make it his own thing as well. So, but these forms of appropriation that take place because without giving away the whole book, which we we can't really because the book does not has en- ends in an ambiguous and kind of open ended way, right? But so the authorities decide that there's a deadline, and if the Palestinians don't reappear by a certain time, three a.m. It's like a very short deadline, <laughs> <Right>. exactly. <laughs> Seize the op- they say, um, you know, then they can't come back. Yes. And so immediately... Which is a pretty, uh, you know, it's funny because it's a pretty on-the-nose echo of what really happened. And then right. you, uh, in, while you're reading it, it doesn't feel like an on-the-nose echo of really ha- what really happened. It feels, actually, at that point, you're so like, your guts are so twisted up. Like, oh my God, 3 a.m., that's like in a few hours. Right. Yeah. And And so, but then you start to get these sort of, even from sympathetic characters, like... The, they start to think of ways in which they might appropriate or benefit from the absence of people they know. Right. Which, Isn't there that cute house in Haifa that I always wanted? Right. The owners are suddenly mysteriously gone. I mean, somebody's got to. Yes. If I don't take it, somebody else is definitely going to take that house. So I better get my ass down there right now. Which is okay, which is universal human nature. Like that would happen in, I think everywhere. I mean, the, the the instant calculation on top of the panic of like potential opportunities, I think is, it's very true. Right. Um, so yeah, but, uh, yeah, it's interesting because I was reading the, this book, um, at the same time I was reading another book called Whose Doll Is It by Tahrid Najjar, which is a YA novel, but, and part of it is set in Jaffa, in 48, when uh, this family sort of leaves in, in a hurry and she, the uh, one girl leaves behind her doll and then an, another girl 
moves into that house. And yes, and her mother and the other family are very sort of like, we deserve this. We've been through a fucking lot. This is our house now. But, you know, the sort of the twist is that the younger girl who who has the doll, um, it, it does, she is like, well, wasn't there another girl? Because I left behind a doll in Poland. Wasn't there another girl who used to have this doll? And they meet as adults, et cetera. But it, it, <clears throat> there was like a very fast moment that here's this empty house in Jaffa. Yes, most everybody is like, it's it's there. It's ours now. There was another novel that you mentioned that has a sort of a disappearance premise. Was it Drumbeat? The, the Drumbeat by Mohamed Al-Bassetier, who's an Egyptian novelist. And this was actually uh, a, a, you know, a, a different setting. It was in an unnamed Gulf country. Uh, all the, um, oops, all the unnamed uh, Khalijis disappear um, and, it, you know, all the migrant workers are left behind. That's right. I and read And then what that. happens? And then what happens? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some unsuccessful and strange things that happen in this book. And uh, although he's actually a, a novelist I love a lot, I think he writes really well about um, s- sort of small town life in Egypt. But um, but I, I I thought the premise was fascinating. Yeah, it's funny how much you can get out of just in any extreme equation, removing one of the elements. Yes. And and just then sort of thinking about how things could be different. And um, I would say about the book of Disappearance, I think the writing is quite striking. There's some quite beautiful passages. It's quite sort of like concentrated and and staccato almost. It's definitely like a novella. Like it doesn't... Um, it gets to the point in the conversations, in the scenes. Um, I found the, uh, there was something I found slightly distracting in the verb tenses and the way they were sort of uh, sentences seemed to shift between multiple verb tenses, which in English I, I found kind of distracting as I read. This is like a minor quibble, but it kind of took me out of of the flow of it sometimes because it didn't sound right to me a little bit. Yeah, it's I, something that's common in Arabic, right? Moving between verb tenses in a single paragraph. But in English, it always, it just, I, I can't handle it. It sounds a little bit like a false note to my, to my ear. But, uh, but I think it was a, it was a purposeful choice, I, mm-hmm. I, I think. Yes, and it was certainly. meant to actually render something. But it didn't quite, I have to say, work for me. On the other hand, I thought there were lots of like very evocative little just images, you know, um, uh, uh, you know the the flowers in the morning in the greenhouse op- opening as if they were yawning, and just lots of uh, in this sort of very dense, almost you know, kind of poetic, kind of dramatic style, um, and and yet pretty fast paced, I think, because yes. from the moment of disappearance to the three a.m. deadline, there's very little time that elapses. Yeah, no, it is. It does. It does move along, and in fact, it's sort of. It, you could have packed a lot more in there, but I think it was maybe a good choice to leave it very bare because, in fact, you end up filling a lot with your own imagination and trying to figure out a lot of things right. that aren't spelled out. Um, uh, so it really gives you the kind of like the 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 bare bones of this scenario and these characters, and then you sort of 
think of lots of different configurations for yourself. Right, because it is so much a book about here's a central question, a central what-if question, and I think a successful novel that has a, you know, this kind of speculative fiction, central what-if question, spawns all kinds of other questions throughout the narrative. And I think it did spawn these other questions and then, and then did leave it as something that you, you know, you, you, the reader, are on the ground throughout. You're not like, you're not part of this, in the inside. You don't, you don't know what the Israeli government is thinking. You're there with the prison guard who is like opening the door and doesn't know what's going on or the person who's waiting for surgery in the hospital. And then I, I think, and then it leaves you not with a, a resolution because you're on the ground. You're, you're with the characters who are trying to figure this out. Both the Israelis, well, mostly the Israelis are the ones who are trying to figure it out. Um, and, uh, and you're left with, still left with the central question um, that you, you know, you come to, you must fill it in. What happened? What happened and what does it mean? Yeah. Also, these, these, this pupil that is presented all the time as their existence is a problem mm -hmm. uh, for everyone else to solve. Um. And their, you know, their very existence is sort of like questioned and invalidated all the time. I think by by taking them away, I don't know, it gives them it gives a kind of space and a kind of freedom. And then you have to think about right what you think should happen to them. Where do you think they should go? Right to like the moon. What? I mean, like, for God's sake, yeah. What is there? So yeah. Anyway, it's a it's a, it's a it's a very evocative and very yeah. Very there are all sorts of miniature disappearances throughout, right? Because just by the reference, instead of to the West Bank, of course, they say Judea and Samaria. Yeah, um, and that's a disappearance as well, or an erasure. So there are all kinds of these, and like you said, the prisoners are in a, have been disappeared into this into this prison. So there's many, many layers of disappearance in it. Yeah. Well, I recommend it. And I think we're going to stop there for now. Yes. Um, it was great talking to you as usual. It was lovely talking to you. And um, goodbye to everyone. And we'll see you again in two weeks. All right. Bye. Bye. Bye.